welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Thank you, Jeff and Terry. Blessing to have you here again. As uh, David was blessed to be able to go up to Idlewild to do worship up there, praying that he actually made it. Um, <laughs> so he must have, because I haven't heard anything from him. So I'm sure it'll be awesome. Well, here we are today. We're going to start something new, not really new. It's kind of new, but not new. We're in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. So turn there if you would like. But we come to a section of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, that is probably one of the most powerful segments of any of the gospels. It is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, these three chapters, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, contain some of the most significant teachings of Christ. And so uh, it's a very powerful section of Scripture. And they begin with the Beatitudes. So we have the Sermon of the Mount. Sermon of the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. Oh, is this her first, his, her? His first Sunday at church. Praise the Lord. Welcome. Welcome. I've already forgotten his name. So what was Samuel, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I need a, I need a, a card to keep track of them all. <laughs> Shiny thing, sorry. So we're in the Beatitudes, we love the babies, so you know, can't help it. In the Beatitudes, and, and the, the thing about the Beatitudes, if we understand them, they can radically change our view of God and our view of ourselves. And if we can rightly apply them to our lives, they can transform our life and the lives of those around us. I, this is the second time I've taught through the book of Matthew. The first time was in 2006. So, you know, 17 years ago. And I look back at my notes and, and say, I didn't know very much back then. I am so thankful that I don't have any grades on those messages. It would not be pretty. So, well, whatever. I don't know what that means, but here it is. Yes, at, at the elementary school. Yes, probably. JJ was probably there too, so praise the Lord. It's probably not an exaggeration that these three chapters have more potential to change your life than any other chapters in the Bible. And so I'm excited to get into this text. Um, so we're going to pray and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity 
the, the blessing it is to be here in this place. And, and I know, Lord, that, that for some, um, you know, this is, this is a tough time um, with all the rain. Lord, I, I love the rain. Um, Kelly doesn't. But, you know, hey, you know, that's, that's the way we are. Um, you, know, the, the, you know, the world is, is, you know, is snow places that we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, we, we thank you, Lord, for how you're working in this world. And we know that there's a reason and purpose for it all. And we know, Lord, that everything that comes into our lives has a reason and purpose. And Lord, this message at this moment, at this time, in this place, to these people is, is what you ordained from the foundation of the, of the existence of this planet. And so we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. And I, I Lord, um, feel um, inadequate for the task before me. But I know, Lord God, your spirit um, is able to make up what I lack. And so I thank you for that grace that you will pour out, not, not on me, but on, on those that you uh, desire to minister to today, whether they're here in person or they're watching online. Lord, I pray for an anointing over their ears. I pray an anointing over my mouth. And I pray, Lord God, that you would use this time for your glory, for the blessing of your people, and for the growing of faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, remember, Jesus began his public ministry by calling people to repent. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount is directed to those who have responded to that call. Not only that call, but also, Jesus is also doing lots of miracles, healing people of every disease and every, every issue that might be in their lives. He was healing them. So they were there either because they had, been, they had responded to the call of repentance or they'd seen his power manifesting through the miracles. So they're there. Whatever reason they were there, this message is targeted at them. This message describes to us the character of those who are in the kingdom of God. It's very important for us to understand what the purpose of this message is, especially the very beginning of it. Remember that if, if the kingdom of, God, of heaven, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is at hand, elsewhere Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is in you, right? So it's, it's here right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven is here right now in you. And if that's true, then we need to know how to live in this kingdom, right? Does that make sense? We're, we're in the kingdom. We need to know the right way to live in this kingdom because you can live in it any way you want, right? We have that free will. But there's a right way to do it too. And the right way is God's way. And so that's what this sermon is all about. This is how to live in God's kingdom, That's a picture we get here in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. When I taught this in 2006, I did all of chapter 5 in one 90-minute message. Did you know that I used to teach 70 and 80-minute messages back then? Anybody want me to? Never mind. I'm not going to do it. People didn't like it when I went that long for some reason. It was usually because we were serving food after church every Sunday, huh? Anybody remember that? Food every Sunday. 
I'm all over the place this morning. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, these are all the people that gathered together because of, his, because of his call to repent, because of the miracles, probably more for the miracles than anything else. He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, which was the, the common um, posture of a teacher in that day, was to sit, and, 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 and the people would stand. It's kind of backwards right now, isn't it? Maybe we ought to change that. Get rid of all the chair. Never mind. No, we're not going to do that. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So Jesus teaching these people. He's going to teach. People have responded. People who are there for whatever reason. But he's going to tell them what it means to follow him in the kingdom of heaven. And we begin with the first of the Beatitudes. So Beatitude Another definition or another description of beatitude is a supreme blessedness. Um, another, another definition of it is um, a beautiful attitude, is another way people have described what a beatitude is. Verse 3, let's, let's pick it up in the very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're like me, you've read the beatitudes lots of times. And you maybe you've heard some sermons on them, but... I think often we, we miss the, the deeper meaning of many of these Beatitudes. And so we're going to dig in. So I hope you'll be patient with me as we do that. But before we begin, if we're going to look at the Beatitudes, and, and if you recognize, if you read down that list, you'll notice that each one of the Beatitudes begins with the word blessed or blessed. I'm going to use those interchangeably. Just get used to it. You know, whichever one you want to use is right. What does it mean? What does the word blessed mean? Well, it can mean happy. It's one of, the, one of the definitions, one of the interpretations of it is it means happy, but that's not what it means here. And that's important for us to understand as we continue through because it's not what it means for any of these beatitudes. It means something deeper. Happy is subjective. It's connected to our circumstances. We are happy when our circumstances are good or positive or flourishing or prosperous. Whatever, whatever way we define happiness, is that's, that's, it's, it's conditional on something. The blessing that Jesus is referring to is something that is outside of us. It's an objective declaration by God of something that's in us. R. Kent Hughes said this, Jesus is not declaring how people feel, rather he's making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. That's huge huge because we often think about that you know that this is how I'm going to be happy if I if I have this I do this I feel this whatever it might be but what what God is saying right here what Jesus is telling us here in the beatitudes no there's something some way that we can be we can know God's approval know his pleasure know his satisfaction with us now there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy okay you know, wanting to be happy is an okay thing. The question is, do you want to be happy more than you want God to approve of you? If you want God's approval more than you want, you want happiness more than you want God's approval, let me promise you something. You will never be happy. 
You must, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must recognize that God's approval, and the way that I often imagine this in my mind, is God's smile. And God looks down upon me and smiles. Do you ever picture God smiling? We ought to. If he approves of us, there's no reason not, I mean, we see it. Matter of fact, I, I was just reading this morning in my devotions of a, of, I think it was one of the Psalms, Psalm 80, I think it was, saying that how, how bad it was to know God's frown. If he frowns, he must smile. I know he does. What do you want more? Do you want to know God's smile? Or do you want to know your smile? The Beatitudes teach us the characters that God approves of. That's, that's what we're desiring. I want to have certain characters, certain character traits, that if those traits are present in me, I can know God's approval. I just know it if that trait is in me. I don't, have to, I don't have to have anybody else tell me. I don't have to have, you know, some vision from heaven. If that trait is present in me, then I know God approves of me. God is looking down upon my life and smiling upon me. And if God is smiling upon my life, what can I expect out of life? Good. I can expect good out of life. Now, will God's good make me happy? Probably. Probably. When God's smiling over our lives, his grace is flowing freely. When his grace is flowing freely, we know it, we sense it, we feel it, and that grace then spreads to those around us. So the Beatitudes are traits, character traits, that every believer should be aspiring to. And one of the things we're going to see as we study through this, very slowly, you'll find, is that they build upon one another. You can't just pick one. and say, this is the one. Out of the, out of the eight or nine, depending on how you define it, these are the ones I really want to do. We need them all, especially this first one. And before we ought to go any further, one of the things we need to acknowledge or we need to recognize that the Beatitudes are not something we do. They are something we are. It's something about, something about our being, something about inside of us, the, the very, our character traits that are present within us. And the first one here says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the world has a lot of weird views on what it means to be blessed, right? Would we acknowledge that? You know, blessing, where does blessing come from? Blessing comes from, uh, you know, wealth or uh, power or fame or influence or, you know, being popular or being satisfied within yourself or whatever, you know, more views or followers or whatever measurement we might use. They, we, we have these different measures. We look at them and say, okay, that's, that's what blessing is. When I have more of this, I am more blessed. To those in the modern world, blessing is directly connected to self. It finds all of its focus, all of its, all of its sense of, of reality in self. We live in a time in human history where self-worship is, is, is overwhelming. It dominates our culture. 
I mean, it wasn't, I mean, media and music have always leaned toward that, the idea of promoting self and the idea of self-worship, but social media has taken that and blown it up exponentially. We are in the generation of the selfie. You know, what is selfie all about? Me. Even if you include somebody else in it, the main person in a selfie is me. It's all about self-worship. And one of the big problems with social media and this idea of self-worship is it's promoting self-worship to the spiritually weak. Now, we are created to worship. We as humans will worship. We'll worship something. Right now, the focus is on self. And if you're spiritually weak and you're worshiping self in whatever way that you're doing it, whatever, whatever way you find that, that fulfillment, that satisfaction, that sense of, of completion in the self-worship, there's a point where you'll realize that what you're worshiping, the God you are worshiping, you, isn't enough. It can't satisfy. It can't solve your problems. It can't achieve anything positive. We live in a time of people, a generation, a couple of generations now have grown up in the delusion of, of social media and self-worship. And, and we're seeing the fruits of that in, in depression, in despair, in, in, in suicidal ideology. I mean, it, it, I mean it, that's always been present in our culture, but it is, just, it is just magnified so much. If you talk to any young person now, they'll tell you one of their big problems is, is, is the fact that they're, they're discouraged, they're despairing, that they maybe even, I, I, I mean, a large percentage of them are thinking about just ending it all. Why? Because their God isn't big enough. And when you're worshiping self, it never will be. It can't answer our questions. And this is not because they are poor in spirit. What they are is poor in self. The answer is not to build self-esteem. How many, I mean, we can remember, if you're old enough, you remember the big push was to build self-esteem. You know, that's what the problem of our generation is. They need more self-esteem. <laughs> they need to worship themselves more is what the answer was. No, no, the answer is to dethrone yourself and to put Christ on the throne of your life because that's the only way you can be free. So when Jesus talks here about being poor in spirit, he's talking about something different than what most people imagine him talking about. When you hear the word poor, What's your, what's your automatic thought? You know, you ain't got no money, right? That's what people think. He's not talking about financial things. He's not talking about material things. He, and he qualifies it, poor in spirit. He's not saying it's a blessing to be poor. It's not. I don't care what you say. It's not a blessing to be poor, has nothing to do with material things. Has nothing to do with things of this world. 
listen, material things will distract us and will add to our delusions, will add to our distractions of, of things of God. I mean, and Matthew, a little bit later on in, the, in this sermon, Jesus is going to say, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't have two gods. It doesn't work. And if you're worshiping self, then you don't have any room for God. You can't worship both. You can't serve both. And so Jesus is telling us you've got to decide who will sit on the throne of your life. There's another rendering of this verse that I think is helpful, also by R. Kent Hughes. He said this, Blessed are those who realize they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This idea of spiritual poverty, be poor in spirit, has nothing to do with material wealth or finances or any of those things. It has everything to do with who you really are in Christ, who you are in God's eyes. That, that we, when we recognize, when we come to God, we've got to know who we are. And what he's saying is the attitude that we ought to have is that we ought to be poor in spirit. To recognize that when we come to God, we have nothing to bring him. Nothing to offer him. Nothing to give him. Nothing that makes us worthy of his grace. Nothing to make us worthy of forgiveness of sin. Nothing that makes us worthy of, his, of him even acknowledging our existence. Nothing. There's a great book, if you... If you can handle it, um, it's uh, Humility. Is that Andrew Murray? Andrew Murray's book, Humility. You want, a, you want a book that will just wreck you and remind you just how much you need to grow in your faith? It's that book. It'll, it, will, it will transform your life. One of the things he says is you must be nothing in God's eyes. That you must recognize that you are nothing. That, that's, a, that's a hard thing. In a selfie generation, in a selfie world, it's hard to get yourself to that place where you acknowledge that I am not, I have nothing to give to God. I have nothing that, that, that makes me worthy of, even, of, of him acknowledging me or him forgiving me, him, him taking me to heaven. I have nothing to offer God. That's spiritual poverty. When we get ourselves a place where we look, when, we, when we're relating to God, I, I, I have nothing, God. There is no reason for you to hear my prayers. There's no reason for you to acknowledge my existence. There's no reason for you to give me any grace whatsoever. All of the reason that he does anything in our lives is found in him. And the sooner we get to that place where we're poor in spirit, recognizing Everything he does for me is because of him, not because of me. It's for me, but it's not because of me. It's a personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. You know, we, live in a, we live in a time and a culture, we live in a country that the idea of that is, is it's foreign to us. It, it's, it's, it's not natural for us to think that way. But that's exactly what he's calling us to. The idea of acknowledging our spiritual poverty. That we spiritually, we have nothing to draw upon. 
that if I want to do anything in God, in Christ, if I want to do anything in this world, if I want to do anything at all, I must have something from God. Otherwise, I'm incapable of anything. Not only that, to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge and understand the depth of your sin. It's to admit that deep down we are morally corrupt and that there's no good in us. No good as it relates to God. Romans 7, 18, Paul speaking, who, as far as I'm concerned, was probably the best Christian that ever walked on this planet. Said in Romans 7, 18, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. How much good? None. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Paul saying, this is a man who is writing the book of Romans, right? Romans, maybe the greatest work of literature in history. Or in the middle of it, he says, man, I am a train wreck. He's expressing spiritual poverty. Saying, I don't, I, I, there is no good in me. If anything good comes out of me, it didn't, it didn't come from me. It came because of God. I added nothing to it. He's, he's admitting that he has, uh, morally, he's unworthy before God. Now, this is totally counterintuitive to us. It is not logical to us. Our logical mind, it doesn't even make sense that God would relate to us this way. Why would God approve us if within us there is nothing approvable? There's nothing worthy of, of approval. Well, it's because we have no moral worth, worthiness at all, none. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, if you're looking, you know, to really build up your self-esteem, read that verse every day for the rest of your life. Here's the thing, God knows that about us. God knows that in us there is nothing good. And if there's any good that comes out of us, any good that comes out of anything that we do in this life, it wasn't because of us, it was because of him. He knows that. And when we admit to what he already knows, that's when we're approved. He approves of us when we agree with him about our moral state. Now, if you've been saved, and I'm praying that you have, if not, we can talk about that later, then there, there was a time when you knew what it meant to be poor in spirit. You may not have been able to define it, but you experienced it. You recognized a desperate need for God. No one comes to Jesus without being poor in spirit. No one. Not truly, anyways. There's a lot of false confessions out there. There's a lot of false salvations. There's a lot of stuff like that that goes on in the world. But unless someone is truly poor in spirit, they cannot come to Jesus. Only those who know there is nothing in them 
that is worth saving can be saved. Nothing that makes them worthy of God's grace and love, nothing that makes them worthy of heaven. Boy, if you believe, you think, if you think you're good enough to get into heaven, watch out. The spiritually proud or self-sufficient, those who think there is something in them that makes them worthy of God, worthy of heaven, worthy of forgiveness, worthy of anything spiritually, there's a good chance they're lost. The problem with some Christians is that they used to be poor in spirit. I'm talking to the church right now. And we all need to hear this. All of us. Raising my hand too. We all need to hear this message. Somehow, they grew out of spiritual poverty. That somehow, over time, they became more worthy. More good. When Jesus was writing the letters to the seven churches, the seventh of those was the church of Laodicea. Listen to this carefully as it relates to what we're talking about right now. Revelation 3.17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Mature Christian, been saved a long time. Careful. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Too often, Christians, they get really comfortable in their faith and they start to assume some responsibility they start to evaluate their, themselves as somehow being good or better or spiritual or moral. These Laodiceans, they thought they had it going on. Jesus said, you don't, you don't have any idea what you are. You're the exact opposite of what you think you are. As our experience with God grows, it is natural for us to, to take ownership of what's going on in our lives. It's just natural. It's human nature. But unfortunately, human nature is usually wrong. We get tempted to depend upon our own knowledge and experience. Uh, listen, I know this absolutely firsthand. As I said, the first time I taught this, 2006. You know how many messages I've taught between 2000? Five and today? I don't know. It's over a thousand. Now, I am one of those types where, and Kelly will tell you this, you put me up in front of a group of people and I'm talking. I, I, I love, I was made for this. I was made to stand in front of people and talk. Now, when I first was teaching God's word, it was a little rough because I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't afraid to speak, but I didn't know very much. But over almost 20 years, I've learned some things. So I still have no discomfort standing up in front of a group of people. But it's not as easy for me to remind myself 
that I don't know anything. And that without God, I am incapable of uttering a single word that will do any good in your heart. And I have to remind myself on a regular basis. I have to, I have to, I have to tell myself I have nothing to offer. When I stand up here, I have, Rick has nothing to give you. And if anything good comes out of what I say, it's because God wants to say something to you, not me. I have to remind myself of that because otherwise, <laughs> too much of Rick's gonna show up here and none of us want that, right? Say amen. amen. You can say amen to that. It's true. <laughs> I'm not afraid. Actually, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of, of messing this up. I don't want to mess it up. What God wants to do here is too important. What he wants to say to you is too important. And I don't want to get in the way of that. The reality is the more mature we become spiritually, the more aware we ought to be of our spiritual bankruptcy. We, ought to, we understand it more powerfully that I have nothing to give. I have nothing to offer that without God, this would be a meaningless exercise. And sadly, I think that may be going on in, on in churches all around us. Meaningless exercises of the flesh. Now God's gonna remind us we need him. Anybody experience that? Anybody experience God reminding them, hey, you need me? He's going to do that. He's going to do it lots of different ways. He'll do it through his word. He'll do it through, through uh, ministries. He'll do it through um, circumstances. That's a big one. He'll remind you really, if you're not paying attention, he'll throw something in your life. To, hey, 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 pay attention. You need me. You know, he doesn't want to do that. He'd much rather we just know that. Paul talked about that idea of circumstances. In 1 Corinthians 12, 10, it says this. As a conclusion, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is saying is when God reminds me just how weak I am, it's then that I become strong. It's then that the power of God moves through me. It's when we recognize I have nothing to offer that the power of God can move through us. When I get out of the way, when Rick gets out of the way, the Spirit of God can move and he can flow unrestrained strained to do whatever work that he wants to do in the hearts of God's people. When I get out of the way, when I recognize I have nothing, I am nothing. And Jesus concludes this beatitude with, that, with the result of being poor in spirit. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we, we sometimes think you know, that, that, you know, it's all about heaven. You know, we're going to get there, and, you know, it's all about blah, blah, blah. We have these weird views about heaven. You know, that it's all, you know, you know I'm storing up treasures in heaven, so it's all about, you know, you know, getting through this so I can get to that. But that's not, that's not the reality. The reality is the spirit of, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven is in me today, right now. That the promises we have for the kingdom of heaven, many of them are to be lived in our lives right this very moment. They're both now and future. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 18. 
And we're going to look at a parable on this very topic. Now, we might sometimes miss this as we're going through this parable. To be poor in spirit is to know that you are not worthy of God's amazing grace. Now, you never were. At no point in your life will you ever be worthy of God's grace. But at some point, you need to know it. You need to acknowledge it. You need to accept the reality that I am not worthy of God's grace. As a matter of fact, as soon as you start thinking you're worthy of it, you're probably going to not experience it as much. Because you are not worthy, because you know you're not worthy, what we tend to do is we turn to God in desperation. We say to God, I need you. And then we'll qualify it with whatever circumstance or whatever thing that we're dealing with in that particular moment. We need him. And the sooner we can get to the place, as Andrew Murray says, of absolute nothingness before God, the more open we are to the grace of God, the more of God's grace we can actually experience. Especially recognize there's nothing I can do to gain God's approval. Not even being poor in spirit. I can't do it by being poor in spirit. I will be approved, but I can't force myself to be poor in spirit so that I can get God's approval. It's just what I have to be. This parable we're going to look at here in Luke 18 describes two men as they approach God. In chapter 18, starting in verse 10, um, I'll back it up to verse 9 as, as we get the kind of a commentary on this parable. And he spoke, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus commenting, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Another way of describing being poor in spirit is humility. Humility. This Pharisee, this self-righteous religious guy who had probably been a God worshiper his whole life, believed that he was worthy of God's grace, worthy of God's blessing because of all that he did. Look at my life, God. You should bless me because I am the greatest in the world. Tax collector knew exactly who he was. And another idea, this idea of poor in spirit not being about money, the tax collector probably had a lot more money than the Pharisee did. He was a lot better off socially. And he stands there, confessing, God, I have nothing, nothing to offer you. Wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. I'm not even worthy to look in your direction, God. 
that man, that tax collector, was poor in spirit. He was the one that God said, he is justified. He is right with me. He is approved by me. I approve of him. This wicked sinner tax collector had God's approval, and the Pharisee, the religious leader that did, dotted all of his I's and crossed all of his T's religiously, was not. Oh, that should be a warning to the church, should it not? Should we not be careful that we don't allow our religiosity to become pride and to become something that stands in the way of us experiencing the fullness of God's grace and the experiencing of his pleasure over our lives? I think so. I want to I experience God's smile. I want to know God's smile. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you've been saved for a while, you need to watch out. Watch out for that spirit of the Pharisee. It doesn't matter what you're doing in life. doesn't matter what you're doing in the church. If anything you're doing in your heart or mind makes you good with God, watch out. That could be spiritual pride. And that might mean that you're not poor in spirit. If God does great things through you, praise God. But you didn't do it. And the moment you take credit for it, if, if, if Jeff came up here and gave us the, you know, the, the most powerful, amazing angel singing in heaven kind of worship, and he said, man, I'm so good. <laughs> I'd smack him. No, I wouldn't. He, no, we, I mean, he, I mean God, God would say, oh, man, so close. We never outgrow the need to be poor in spirit. And I believe as, as, as believers who have been saved for any amount of time, we gotta really look deep into our hearts and ask ourselves, is this an area where maybe I am letting, my, letting me, self, be exalted? Maybe, maybe I'm, you know, maybe not directly taking credit for it, but I'm giving people an opportunity to give me credit for it in such a way that it's not healthy or good. You know, it's a danger. You know, every now and then I preach a good message. And when I do, you know, somebody will say, hey, Pastor, that was, that was really good. I got to be careful with those. Because if I did preach a good message, it wasn't me. It was because God loves you so much that he used this wretched sinner to tell you something you needed to hear so bad that he would break through the hardness of your heart, the fogginess of your mind, the, the clutteredness of whatever is going on in your life to tell you something you needed to hear. Not me. Now, I'm not gonna rebuke you if you say something, I'm gonna say thank you. Right, and I know, I know where it came from. But don't, 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 let, don't let your good works stand in the way of God's grace. Too often, too often we're tempted to do that, especially if God is using us on a regular basis. Be very, very careful. The longer we're in the faith, I think the more we need to be reminded to be poor in spirit. Because listen, if you're not poor in spirit, there's no sense even bothering with the rest of the Beatitudes. 
you're not gonna get there. They're not gonna happen. It begins right here in this very first one. You wanna experience the kingdom of heaven today? Be poor in spirit. How do we do that? Pray. Imagine that. Talk to God about it. Because who knows your heart better than God? Well, who knows your heart at all? Only God. Ask him to reveal your heart to you. Ask him to show you if there's anything in there that, 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 that any pride is creeping in at all, at any level. And if you do find some, what should you do? Repent. Confess, repent, and turn away from it. Ask yourself, do I really need God for everything? Do I need God? And if, and if, you, can, if you can say that, no, I, I got this part, I got this thing, I've got that, then you need, you need to be humbled before God. How much of yourself dominates your life? How sold into the selfie culture are you? How important is what others think about you? How important is that? Because the degree to which that's important to you is an evidence of how much self-worship is going on in your life. Listen, there is nothing better in this life, nothing, than knowing the smile of God on your life. Nothing. If you know God is smiling down on your life, there can be nothing better than that because you are walking in the fullness of his grace. And you will know happiness of some kind. I don't know exactly what I'm I'm not making any, you know, name it and claim it promises here. I can't do that because it's not relevant. But you'll know God's smile. And there's a sense of peace that comes with that. Yeah, I don't know what's coming. I don't know how this is gonna work out. But I know this is what God wants. I know this pleases God. And when something pleases God, he looks down upon our lives and smiles. And I love that. We are here living in the king's kingdom. And one of the big steps is to be poor in spirit. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this opportunity to look into your word and to see this powerful text about being poor in spirit, and it is so unnatural for us in this time and culture, and yet it's so important for us. Everything we do, every interaction we have with others out in the world seems to try to, to promote self or to promote recognition or, or, or approval or something else, Lord. And, and, and usually it's man's approval, and, and rarely ever is it seeking your approval, but Lord, our, our heart ought to be desiring your approval above all else and willing to sacrifice man's approval for your approval, willing to do what the world disapproves of so that we can have your approval, so that we can have your smile because we know that your smile is all that matters. And so I pray for this, your people. I pray that as they sit in the, in, the, in the stillness and quietness of their own hearts, 
that you would reveal to them exactly what they need to see. If there's any pride, if there's any, anything in them that is not poor, in fact, they have any sense of, of, of their own worthiness, their own ability, their own anything, that Lord God, that you would help them to see that and you would help them begin that process of being free of that. And I pray, Lord, I pray for myself as well that, we, that, I, that I would not allow any, any prideful thoughts or attitudes to creep in, but that we would all be poor in spirit because I believe it's, it's those who are poor in spirit that will experience the riches of heaven both now and forever. And so we pray, Lord, help us. Help us to, to walk in that, in that utter nothingness, that the could complete total dependency upon you for anything and everything. And Lord, we recognize that all, all of that is possible because Jesus set himself aside and modeled this very behavior for us. That as God, he walked amongst us as someone who was utterly dependent upon you. God, how, how is that even possible? Help us, to, help us to desire it and to, and to strive for it and, and to cling to it when we find it. Help us to, to avoid the temptations of our own experience and knowledge and help us to turn to you in absolutely everything. We thank you, Lord, for what Jesus did for us. We thank you, Lord, that through his sacrifice, we are made one with you. And we thank you for that in his name. And we all pray it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and his kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.